there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey, Java junkies, welcome to another episode of Time for Coffee. Whether you're a new junkie or someone who's been listening for a while, I want you to please let me know what you think of the show and the guests and how I can be making it more useful for you because that is why I'm doing it. You can tweet me at time, the number four, coffee, LLC. And as always, I want to know what type of coffee you're loving these days because it is time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today, Professor Mike Steep, who is an adjunct at Stanford University and the executive director at Stanford Engineering Center for Disruptive Technology and Digital Cities and former SVP, of global business operations at Park Xerox. Mike, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you fully caffeinated and ready to go? Absolutely. Double espresso twice today. Holy so cow. Ready to go. <laughs> but you're not shaky. <laughs> no, I'm not shaky. Awesome. Not yet. Okay, not yet. Well, let's see if we can make it through the interview before the shakes set in. Mike, I was hoping that you could give our Java junkies a quick overview of Stanford's Digital Cities program and how and why it's relevant to the professional aspirations of the Time for Coffee community. And by that, I mean for those Java junkies who are still in college, who may be in grad school, and maybe even for those who are already in the working world. Well, uh, the program was founded on the uh, mission to transform disruptive technology into new opportunities, specifically in urban centers, what we refer to as cities. And unlike most smart city programs, our focus is on the commercial markets inside of those cities, because we firmly believe that is the commercial private companies that will actually create the opportunity to digitize the city, not the governments themselves. And uh, a lot of the assumptions in the program have come from my own experience uh, in the corporate world, but also serving on the London Smart Board Committee, which was formed about five years ago to help the city advise its various departments on how to incorporate technology into the development of the city infrastructure, transportation, and so forth. So the first thing that's unique about the program is, one, it really focuses on markets inside of cities and not governments. And two, it works with corporations like Uber and others to figure out how to accelerate their growth opportunities through disruptive technologies. So it provides a tremendous career opportunity for Java junkies. So take us inside the digital city of the future. And I'm not mm-hmm. even sure if we're, you know, how far into the future we're looking or if it's actually already here. You know, what are all the moving pieces to the digital city of the future? Well, the first thing to understand is that the city is a series of commercial markets. Um, and markets, for example, for transportation, for food, and so forth, just as it has always been throughout the centuries. What's different about this when you start thinking about disruptive technology is how we actually deliver those services to the citizens of the city. As an example of that, we're working with a startup called 1.1, which is developing a radical new approach to delivering food to city residents. They can take an old abandoned warehouse of 10,000 square feet, convert it using robotics and aeroponic farming to produce up to 35 acres of food, disease-free, The food is immediately available. There's no distribution costs. The quality of nutrition is extremely high. So it's a radical new approach to the way we think about food delivery in the city. 
as another example of that, we're also working with a company that has high-resolution radar, which makes it possible to deliver high bandwidth by beaming a pencil beam of radar into a building. So instead of thinking about cabling or delivering signal, uh, bandwidth signal by antenna, we can do it by a pencil beam on the radar beam itself. So it changes the whole notion of how bandwidth can be deployed within cities. So as you start seeing all these various developments, when they converge and they begin to develop in the marketplace, it creates a whole new type of lifestyle for individuals. It makes it possible for people to get high nutrition food, for example, to do it locally. At some point, you will be able to customize that food to your own nutrient requirements for your own body. Oh my gosh. And, yeah. So you can actually program the food at some point. So if I've got a vitamin D deficiency, for example, I can have food produced for me at Whole Foods or other, for example, as a, as an, uh, a theoretical at a Whole Foods where I can order on Prime, go up on Prime, order it, and then be able to go over to the facility, pick it up the same day. Our whole notion about what it means in terms of quality of life and what can happen is is being radically transformed by disruptive technology. How far are those companies, the one that you alluded to that can produce that huge amount of food in, in a warehouse, how far are they from being up and running? Well, we're already producing food from the company uh, in Sunnyvale. California out of the prototype. So we're probably, I would say, 18 months to three years before it becomes market viable, meaning uh, commercially deployed, up to five years for widespread adoption. So if this technique works, it can also radically transform the way we use water resources, for example. So a typical farm in one of these facilities uses one-tenth of water. It also doesn't pollute the environment. So, for example, fertilizer comes down from the Gulf of Mexico off of the farms and creates a huge problem uh, in the waters. So this is a green approach that can radically change the way we even think about the environment. So we're three to five years away from broad, in my opinion, from broad distribution of this type of technology into the cities. That's just incredible. I mean, this is like upending the world as we know it. Yes, and that is the whole point. And what we're trying to do with this disruptive technology is to accelerate its deployment into commercial markets. So the way we do that is by hooking up to corporations as part of this program uh, to help us along the way. A lot of these companies have never seen this type of technology before. So their own internal R&D groups are not familiar with it. So by introducing and making them aware of it and then allowing them to participate in it, we can drastically accelerate the adoption of the technology by major corporations. So that means job opportunities in different space, for example. But it also means companies will have a new growth path that they don't necessarily have today. So what skills do the smart leaders need to have to be fully equipped and ready to fill the smart jobs of today and the near future? Well, there's two key skill sets, one of which is being able to adapt to change. And change is absolutely uh, upon us uh, with disruptive technology. It moves so rapidly that it's very difficult for humans to keep up with it all, emotionally, but also from a management perspective. So being able to adapt and change over short periods of time is a critical aptitude for any leader. The second thing is expertise, being aware of how this technology is developing. And the key skill set there is networking and networking, not just for the sake of 
being able to address a particular problem, but networking in general to learn where the technologies are actually developing. That means reaching out and touching somebody when you don't really have a relationship with them. Learning that skill set is going to be absolutely critical for success. And where do you think they can do that? Is that like LinkedIn or what platforms? No, no, it it actually requires, certainly here in Silicon Valley, it requires the ability to read voraciously through networking connection points and then determine on your own whether you have the right people in your network. And if you don't, to start reaching out. Yeah, you can use LinkedIn, but that's not enough. The way I think of it is is a transaction. So, for example, if I need some information about a technology that, let's say, someone has in a different company, I have to be able to write email or connect with them in a way that says, I have this particular interest. Here's why we should talk. I'd like to take 15 minutes of your time on the phone so I can understand more and then engage. And that's a skill set that is absolutely critical, being able to network without a specific purpose and then creating an opportunity or an opening where you can gain some information or knowledge, building that relationship. The other thing I would also encourage people to do is there are various association meetings around Silicon Valley, like the Churchill Club, for example, where you can get together with other Silicon Valley people just to try to understand where a company is headed or an industry is headed, and then connect up with people at the meeting for further coffee breaks, where you can talk to them specifically over a coffee or lunch about where the company is headed. Can anyone go to those meetings? Yes, they're open to anyone. The Churchill Club in particular, I would recommend in Silicon Valley because it does have a published set of meetings. You have to be a member. There's a small fee on an annual basis. But some of the companies here in the Valley already are members and they send their own employees uh, to the meetings to learn what's going on. Mike, for those Java junkies who are still in school, and I guess I'm thinking undergrad at this point, what kind of classes should they take to be truly competitive in this new workforce? And does this apply to specific majors, those Java junkies who want to work in Silicon Valley or with computers or tech? Or is this advice for everyone, no matter what they think they may want to do when they graduate? I think it's for everyone. I think that the the two skill sets that are most needed these days are understanding change. So I would recur, I would encourage anyone to take a psychology course or a course on how to deal and adapt to change, even though if you don't think you're actually uh, have to do that in your current situation, you will have to deal with it ultimately. And the second thing is communication skills. And that's a real weakness these days. Uh, because we're so device dependent, we're, you know, we're, we're always on social media or we're texting. That's not a communication skill. That's a communication device. It's the ability to learn how to connect with people in a way where you can get information constructively and give them something in return. And that is a skill set that has to be learned through, uh, I would encourage either a communication course or learning interpersonal uh, behavior and how that works. Great advice. And what about for those Java junkies who've recently graduated and are in the workforce already? What can they be doing now to get ahead of disruptive technologies or at least ride the wave of current technologies? How can they augment their own competitiveness? Well, this is going to sound very crazy because of uh, everyone's so needy of time. But the one thing they can do is spend 20% of their time in networking. What I mean by that is if you're not spending at least 20% of your time per week connecting with other people who are in competitive companies, but also in other types of companies uh, that where they have related technology, you're, not, you're just not going to be able to build a network that's sustainable long term. 
And so you actually have to change the way you think about work. It's not about a career path in a single company. It's about actually the value of your expertise that you've created to work for multiple companies over the course of the career. And the, the key ingredient to that is interpersonal skills and communication and networking. Without the networking capability, you will have no access points. And at some point, you're going to run into a problem with your company. Either it's not doing well or it has to be changed or it's, it's experiencing economic problems, but you're going to have to find another job at some, at some point in time. It's better to be proactive rather than reactive kind of a situation. Recognize that you really are a consultant, not a full-time employee. That's the first piece of it. And a consultant means you have to be able to network broadly. That sounds to me like advice that we would not have gotten when we were in our early 20s. Is this, do you think, unique to this generation? I think it's unique to our time. And it's not specific to a generation because the executives who I'm dealing with are mid-career to advance in their career, CTOs, other things. And they recognize that this is an absolute critical element. And the reason for the success, the reason they've risen up through the organization structure. So it's intergenerational. I don't believe it's specific. I just think it's more intense and, and, and it's now become an absolute requirement. Whereas before, you, you really didn't have to go that extensively into networking skills to be successful. Now it's absolutely essential. And the reason is because technology is changing so rapidly, so is the expertise. And the people who have the expertise are changing in and out of jobs all the time. The turnover rate in Fortune Group companies is uh, approaching 20%. So that means that contact that you have developed over a period of time is going to change out, move to another company or into a new situation. And you have to keep abreast of that uh, because that can create an opportunity for you. So it's very different. I think the, the acceleration is what is the main difference here. You've done some writing on career tips for millennials who are obviously older than the 18 to 25 Java Junkie community. But honestly, I think it's yeah. never never too early for Java Junkies to learn how to set themselves apart from their colleagues and distinguish themselves in the office. Yeah. Especially because, as you've written, the days are gone when you get promoted by just doing your job well. That's right. Could you briefly recap what you characterized as the five wow factors that you've identified as being the most important in order to lead change in the workplace and increase your chances for getting promoted? I can go through some of those. Uh, the first one I think that is most important is being able to have this external network while you're also inside the company. I'll give you an example of what I mean. You know, a company cultural legacy constrains what people believe inside of a company. As an example, the CEO of Microsoft used to go around the company when Apple first introduced the iPhone to tell them that it was a fad. It was never going to take off. It was never going to be something that important. He also went around the company to talk about the iPad as another fad, something that, again, would not result in any significant revenue. And so when you're inside the company and you have a CEO leader who is constrained in his thinking, that trickles down through the corporate culture. So it becomes very difficult for you to be able to uh, have a different point of view or a different strategy without it being quashed. So the only way that you could really understand what is true is to go outside of the company and have a network that really understands the ramifications when Apple introduced an iPhone, what it meant in terms of the value proposition for the device. 
If you didn't have that outside network, you would not be able to come up with salient recommendations that could change the course of the way the company moved forward. In some situations, you can't change a CEO's perspective, and that's a time to recognize that you're in the wrong place. You need now to move on to do something different. In other cases, when you want to influence the CEO's perspective, you've got to be able to present information that's different from what he gets inside of the company. And that's absolutely critical uh, from a leadership perspective. The company is a really difficult and complex animal. And so the skill sets required to adapt are pretty complex in and of themselves. Network's one piece of it. Information is absolutely key. Knowing what information is critical to drive a decision and how to actually communicated inside of the company culture. Yeah. And you need to have that culture that's going to be receptive. Amenable. Amenable. Right. Absolutely key. And if it is not, then you have begun the downward slide. I remember that Nokia, when, it, when the iPhone was first introduced, the conversation focused not on the new value proposition, but wh- why they failed to figure this out. And why they were having that conversation, their revenue dramatically declined, their market share went to hell in a handbasket, literally. And then, of course, Microsoft acquired them, which was a kiss of death uh, on the acquisition side. A kiss of so, death for which company? Uh, well, for both, actually. Nokia uh, ended up having to, I mean, they laid off 32,000 employees, a huge write-off, billions of dollars in write-off, but at the same time, their market share for Microsoft went down the two. It was a really ill-conceived strategic acquisition. And that's because the management team simply did not see what the real problem was, that a new value proposition had been introduced by Apple and that this was real and was going to change the way the industry operated. It simply refused to recognize that point. And, uh, and companies do that consistently, not just the Microsoft. Apple did the same thing back in the early 90s when it started having financial problems. It's ironic that it hit a trillion-dollar valuation when it was nearly bankrupt back in the 90s. So you, you can see what a change in leadership can do. The second thing is an outside-in perspective. Instead of thinking about your products and services to look for a new market opportunity, an incremental market opportunity, instead reconsider what the problem is you're trying to solve for your customers and use your expertise to create new products and services from the using the outside example. So the outside-in model has worked dramatically to change innovation in a number of companies. The building of the electric airplane by Airbus was an outside-in process. Apple was an outside-in process from Steve Jobs coming in from the entertainment industry to change the way the company thought about its devices. So most companies are inside out, 90, 95% of them. So the few companies that do look at an outside-in model drastically change the way they think about innovation and move uh, into the new space. Rapidly. Mike, before I ask you about your time as an undergrad, I'm wondering <laughs> if if you think that it would be a good idea for Java junkies to do what you've done. You've been in both the corporate world in disruptive tech and in the startup world. Do you think that kind of cross-pollination is a recipe for a more fulfilling, more impactful career path? Well, it certainly has been for me, but I don't know how applicable it is for other people because I've dealt with a really high degree of risk. The overlap is that in large corporations, I've always come in as an entrepreneur. Either it's a turnaround or starting a new business. So it has characteristics of a startup community uh, without 
uh, with more resources and probably a little bit less risk involved. So that's the intersecting point in my career. If you take a look at what I've been doing, it's always about driving new revenue opportunities through new products or services or trying to do a turnaround situation, very similar to what startup technologies involve for venture cap funded uh, companies. I don't necessarily think that other people can intersect at that rate. It's probably a small percentage, I would guess, but it's been very successful for me in my career. It, the cross-pollination is really interesting because you know, corporations also value startup mentality because they don't have the skill sets internally, nor do they have the culture, by the way. So you know, if they see a startup person who's been successful at driving something and they acquire that company, very few uh, entrepreneurs are able to survive long-term in that environment simply because they can't deal with the company culture. So it's not everybody's cup of tea to do both. So I would I would pick an area that you feel most comfortable with and then create a career based upon where that business model for that industry is going. Pick an industry model where you can make mistakes. In other words, a high growth industry, not one that has a low growth maturity cycle to it. That's what I did in my career. I chose technology at a time when everyone else was doing other things in a more traditional model. But we're, the industry is growing at 25, 35% a year when I joined. That's a lot of latitude for making mistakes. There's forgiveness. When you're in a mature industry, there is absolutely no forgiveness for mistakes. Failure can actually sink a company. I think our Java junkies will be amused, <laughs> perhaps, to, to hear that you went to UPenn. That's not amusing. But that you got your BA, not in engineering, <laughs> not in tech, but in American civilization at the Wharton Business School. Did you know what you were going to do with that major? Yes. What does American civilization mean? At least back then, it meant understanding culture and change, ironically. So for example, as stupid as it may seem, some of the lectures on the, the changing culture between the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the Puritans and what followed thereafter, how a radical change occurred in the way people behaved was what we studied. And that's exactly the kind of background that one needs in understanding how to deal with culture inside of corporations, because nothing changes in the way that humans behave. There's a set of rules, there's a tipping point, and then all of a sudden what you believe before no longer applies, and everybody jumps on board to the new approach. So believe it or not, American civilization, talking about how the country evolved as a culture and a set of values was highly relevant to a business career and trying to understand how to deal with companies. On the technology side, I learned that through experience. My first job at HP, my boss was frustrated with my inability to understand where technology was headed. So he assigned me the job of understanding everything that I was supposed to know about something called the 2680 laser printer, a million-dollar laser printer system that connected the networks. And I had to become the expert on it. I absolutely hated the experience. <laughs> But by the time I was done, I could explain in you know, incredible detail to a customer why this was important for them to buy. And so he taught me a valuable lesson, a hands-on approach. Everybody in technology needs to use the products. It was called the next workbench syndrome at HP. That's what they used to refer to it as. By using the products, you understand and, and become empathetic with customer needs. And that's something that I adopted in my career. And that's actually what created a technical capability that I started to develop you know, as I got into my career. It doesn't seem relevant, but it actually is relevant. And so understanding people is part of the, the crux in understanding how to deal with change. How did you get that first job at HP? I was recruited by HP. I was the, one of the first in the MBA class 
In fact, HP had a problem. They never actually had MBAs before, so they, they were trying to figure out what to call us. And since everybody had to be an engineer in those days, they called us marketing engineers. So and, wait, was uh, this? So I, I'm just trying to get with the the chronology of your educational background. Was this coming out of Penn, or was this coming out of Darden? This is coming out of Darden. It was the first class that we were the very first class of MBAs, I think, that HP had recruited. They just didn't know how to deal with us. They knew that that they had to have business. Uh, experience now. They just didn't know what to call us because we weren't engineers. And so they called us marketing engineers. So when we went into the company, 99% of the employee population were engineers. Very small percentage of sales and marketing folks that just had business degrees. So that was quite a change for the, for the company culture in those days. And uh, from our point of view, MBA was a hot ticket in those days, less so today uh, than it was back then. But uh, MBA was considered to be a, an entry point, a degree that would get you entry into virtually any major corporation. The choice I had was either to go in directly into technology or to take a job as an investment banker. I had two different offers when I left graduate business school. I decided to go into technology because I thought that it would be more interesting not necessarily because it was more lucrative. It would have been more lucrative for me to become an investment banker in those days. Did you go directly from UPenn into the Darden MBA program? No, I took a year plus off and I was actually headed to law school. My uh, parents wanted me to go to law school and in the worst possible way. So I had been accepted at a law school and was given an offer by a trustee at the University of Pennsylvania to join his firm for the summer. And so I started working with corporate lawyers and after that experience, decided I hated lawyers and I actually liked working with the business clients. So I completely changed direction and decided to get an MBA instead of a law degree. And so I changed course as a result of, you know, spending a little bit of time with the law firm. And I always had interesting projects. The, the client we were working with was Alyeska. I was flown out to Alaska to look at the Trans-Alaska Pipeline Project. That was my assignment to figure out why there were cost overruns. And uh, I enjoyed working with the corporate client much more so than with the lawyers. So when I came back from that experience, I decided to change course, much against my parents' desires. And uh, I decided to go get an MBA. What did you do, if anything, outside of hitting the books when you were at school, whether at UPenn or at Darden, and whether it's an internship, a club that you belong to, that you look back on and now see that these were assets once you started looking for mm -hmm. a job? Great question. Well, Penn had a speaking club called Connaissance. And what I did is I helped manage that speaking engagement. So we were in a radical time. The Vietnam War was raging. One of the things that we uh, did is we brought speakers that were very controversial onto, onto the campus. So I brought on people that, like Daniel Ellsberg, Pentagon Papers. They had just been published when I was in college. So I brought him in as a speaker on campus. And then I brought a whole wide range of different subject matter experts. I brought in Alex Haley. He had written a book called Roots that year to speak. So that experience of being able to deal with people from different backgrounds, experts and leaders in their field, changed the way that I thought about opportunity. And I became much more broader based, thinking that there was a lot more opportunity than, than I could possibly deal with at that time. And change was in the air. And I just embraced it. A lot of other people would shy away from it. I embraced the change after I, after I had experience in dealing with some of these people. Mike, final yeah. time for coffee question here. If you would, could you share a story with the Java Junkie community about a low time for you 
in your profession when yeah. you had to dig deep to keep going? Yes. Well, those happened. I had a venture, you know, at a very young age, I raised over what today would be six to $10 million in Series A venture capital from Harvard University, Harvard Management Team. And we started a company that was literally right in the center of desktop publishing. You couldn't have picked a better time for it. And um, I thought that I had picked the right co-founder. And during that whole experience, what I discovered was I had the wrong engineering partner. By the time that we had gotten the product ready for launch in the marketplace, we had a huge switch in the industry standard away from what then was OS2, IBM's operating system, to Windows. And so our product was irrelevant. We'd have to recode it. It would have taken three years to do it. So the VCs decided to basically kill the company off. And so that experience was a kind of walking the desert for me because up until that point, I was arrogant. I thought that I could do virtually anything. I had raised venture capital. I thought I had gotten the key person involved where I discovered was my own limitations. So I had to really self-examine myself to understand how did I close my mind and how do I open it up again to think differently about situations. So that was a, a really tough walking the desert time for me, you know, as a result of that experience. Remember, failure, in my opinion, is actually an attribute. I recalibrated and changed the way I started thinking about things. I did a lot more due diligence uh, for future opportunities. I didn't take people at face value. And I haven't uh, done that since uh, that time. When I say I don't take them at face value, I look underneath the covers to try to understand what motivates them and whether or not who I'm dealing with actually has the credentials necessary to do the task ahead of us. So I spent a lot more time on understanding people to, uh, to go forward with that. So that, that was probably the, well, the toughest times for me. And I also had to pop back into a corporate situation. I didn't really want to. I wanted to do startups, but I got married at the time. And my uh, wife decided that she would have a little bit more stability for kids. So I had to change course pretty radically. But what I found out is all that experience and the failure piece of that, when I learned from it, um, really made a huge benefit when I went back into corporate environments. So I was able to kind of exercise some of the entrepreneurial spirit without necessarily taking on the same amount of risk. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Clearly, you bounce back and are doing incredible things today. And I want to thank you sincerely for making time for coffee with me and the Java Junkie community and continued best wishes with the digital cities work that you're doing that is going to be so revolutionary for, for the way that we live. Well, thank you very much. And I appreciate the opportunity and very best of luck to your audience. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.